Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, for all the many blessings we have here every Sunday. I'm particularly mindful, Father, in the talk that you, in the opportunities to talk that I have and that you bring to my mind throughout the week that so many people in the body of Christ, Father, suffer through a Sunday service in which the Word of God is absent. The glory of the gospel is never proclaimed. The opportunity to pray and fellowship with one another is superficial at best. And these things, Father, exist because we are weak and we are sinful and because the church must rest in your spirit or go nowhere without it. We are far from perfect, Father. As a people, we are no less sinful than any other, but we're thankful that at least here, Father, once a week, if not more, we hear your word, we pray, we fellowship in the spirit, each in his own way, in her own way, in the weakness of the flesh. But yet, Father, you are made to be seen as strong and powerful and present through our weaknesses. Thank you, Father, for the privilege that it is to be counted one of your children and to serve you here at Oak Hill. Take the word that I speak, Father, and as it comes forth, let it be from your spirit. Let it be received according to your spirit. Let the truth reign regardless of what I say, all to your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the story of Jacob is still the story in front of us in chapter 31 this morning. That story, I think I've mentioned more than once, is a story that's fundamentally a story of God's sovereignty. But it's one of sovereignty working in and through the flawed lives of men, the the union of men in their will and God in his sovereignty. And standing at the head of that line of flawed men is Jacob himself in this family. God intended to give Jacob a blessing, if you remember, back when he was a child in his home with his brother Esau. But rather than wait for God's providence to play out, Jacob tried to take it for himself and he did it through dishonest means. God intended for Jacob to take a wife from Abraham's relatives in Haran, but Jacob's deception required that he flee there under duress, under the threat of death. God intended to give Jacob one fertile wife, and Jacob instead chose by lust to take three more. Each of those decisions causes him grief along the way, one way or another. They're all evidence of the way God is at work getting what he wants, yet Jacob is striving against God rather than with God, and to no different effect except that he has to suffer for his sin along the way. Wouldn't it have been easier just to fall into the hands of God and let God's will carry him? That's the thing Jacob seems to be lacking. There was a story of a pastor who was addressing his congregation one Sunday with a message about the need to preserve our bodies, our temples, the temple of the Lord, our physical bodies. And he starts out this way. He says, the material we put in our stomachs is enough to have killed most of us sitting here years ago. Bread meat is awful. Soft drinks corrode your stomach lining. Fast food is loaded with preservatives. High fat diets can be disastrous. And none of us realizes the long term harm caused by the germs in our drinking water. He goes on and on and on. Toward the end, though, he stops and he says, there is one food more than any other that is dangerous to our bodies. Can anyone here guess what food causes the most grief and suffering even many years after eating it? After a few seconds, there's a quiet older man, 75 year old man sitting in the front row who raises his hand and offers the answer. He says, wedding cake. If only Jacob had understood that before he married four wives. 
Now, Jacob's life here is a tug of war between trusting in God, relying on God, and trusting and relying on himself. Increasingly, what God has been doing in the story and what we're going to see him continue to do today is reveal himself to Jacob as the one in authority, as the one in control, as the one who's been doing all the work in the first place. And Jacob, being the slow learner that he is, he continues to struggle in that trust. He continues to rest in his own authority, even as he will at times acknowledge God's authority. It almost seems a bit schizophrenic to acknowledge something but live differently. And yet, when you think about our own lives, isn't that really the struggle every Christian has? Knowing what we know, we still refrain from living that way so often. And this is Jacob in a nutshell. Today, Jacob takes another step in that direction, even as his family lags behind. Because in the story of Jacob now, you're going to see his family increasingly become the focus of the story. And in that focus, you're going to watch the sins of Jacob manifested in the lives of the people of his family, and then that sin multiply in their lives. So let's go into chapter 31 now, verse 1, and watch how this focus now begins to move slightly from Jacob and his sin to the family as a whole. Verse 1, now Jacob heard the words of Laban's sons, saying, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's, and from what belonged to our father's he has made all this wealth. Jacob saw the attitude of Laban, and behold, it was not friendly toward him as formerly. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah to his flock in the field and said to them, I see your father's attitude, that it is not friendly toward me as formerly, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me. And changed my wages ten times. However, God did not allow him to hurt me. If he spoke thus, the speckled shall be your wages. Well, then all the flock brought forth speckled. And if he spoke thus, the striped shall be your wages. Then all the flock brought forth striped. Thus, God has taken away your father's livestock and given them to me. Well, Jacob has now worked for six years for Laban under these new terms, the ones we discussed last week. And in the course of those six years now, he has built this large and impressive inheritance for himself. How do I know it's six years? Well, you find that out in verse 38. Six years of working now, in addition to the 14 that he spent when he was earning the time for his two wives. And, of course, in these six years, the part of the herd that belongs to him has become increasingly strong and numerous, while the part of the herd that belongs to Laban is becoming increasingly weak and feeble. And we talked last week about how that was taking place. Then, at a point six years into this, Jacob gets word that Laban's sons are walking around saying that Jacob is thieving. He is stealing uh, Laban's wealth, Laban's livestock. They conclude that the only way to explain Jacob's strength And Laban's weakness is that there's something underhanded going on. They go a step too far here and they assume that something unfair is happening. Now, we know from last week that what Jacob has been doing here is totally within keeping to the agreement he made with Laban. He's shepherding Laban's flocks. He's doing his best in his own interest to make those flocks produce animals that, according to the agreement, would be his. But that also has, as an unintended or perhaps intended side effect, It makes the other flock weaker. So Jacob wasn't stealing from Laban. Jacob wasn't doing anything dishonest. He was fulfilling his end of the bargain, and he was playing it to his greatest advantage, which is not something unfair or unreasonable. 
So now Jacob takes note of what the sons are saying. Jacob says to himself, they're no longer friendly to me. Specifically, Laban is no longer friendly to me as he once was. In the Hebrew, it literally states, Laban's face is not toward Jacob anymore. Laban's face is turned away. Meaning, his entire attitude has done an about face. Before, Laban was inclined toward Jacob. Laban favored Jacob. So long as, so long as, Jacob worked for him and blessed him. So long as what Jacob did helped Laban, well then Laban had an attitude of favoritism toward Jacob. Now the reason for that favoritism was simple. Jacob was increasing Laban's wealth. Laban wanted wealth. Ergo, I like Jacob. Makes perfect sense to us, doesn't it? Do you know that's the world's form of friendship? In a nutshell, that's a perfect capsulation of how the world treats each other. The world is friendly toward those who give us what we want. We love those who do what we want. We show favoritism to those who make us feel good. Whether the thing we want is money. Do you ever notice that people with a lot of money are treated very well by those around them? And the more money you have, the more you're treated well. What explains that except our desire that they might share their wealth? Or power? Or fame? Or compliments? Or sex? Or something else that we want, we show interest in them as long as they give us what we want. That's the world's form of love, the world's form of friendship. The love that God has and the love he gives us through his spirit is entirely different. It works on an entirely different principle. It is agape love. The word literally means self-sacrificial brotherly love. That's the kind of love that God has. That's the kind of love that God gives. It's unconditional. It doesn't seek a relationship for what it can get out of the relationship. It seeks a relationship for what it can give to the relationship. It's an entirely different premise for a relationship. According to Scripture, it's the kind of relationship the world cannot know apart from God's own love living in them. We can all think of some relationship in which we can say to ourselves, you know, I don't think that was based on getting something. I think that was just true, genuine love. What the scriptures would tell us is if you could peel back the facade of people's lives and of what they say, and you could go deep enough into the heart where you eventually land is on selfish self-interest in that relationship. And the proof of it is that when the relationship stops getting what it wants, the thing that binds that relationship starts to fall apart. That's why we have a 50 percent divorce rate or better in the United States. Largely speaking, it's because the relationships are formed on some kind of expectation. And when the expectation falls away, when we don't get what we want out of the relationship, then there's no point in it anymore. How often does one marriage partner tell another, I can't get what I need here or you're not giving me what I need anymore? That statement in itself is a revealing of the selfish nature, the self-centered nature of a relationship. And it goes deeper. Sibling relationships, work relationships, neighbor relationships. If the person doesn't do what I want, I have no interest in the relationship. That's the core of flesh-driven, worldly relationships. The church, those in faith, those with the Spirit still have that vestige in them. We're not immune to that kind of thinking, but by the Spirit, we're called to a higher form of thinking. Jesus told the disciples in Luke 6, 32, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. 
If you lend to those whom you expect to receive repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to receive back the same amount. But, Jesus said, love your enemies and do good and lend. Expect nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Once again, the standard that we are told to emulate is Christ. And the result of that emulation is that when someone does whatever it is they do, it has no bearing on our relationship with them, our love for them and our relationship with them. They can treat us poorly and we love them. They can treat us well, we love them. Our relationship is founded on something that is not conditional and does not relate to performance. That's why I think God uses the comparison of the father and a son when he talks about how we in the body of Christ have been adopted as sons of the father. Because whether or not my son does the right thing, he's always my son. So Jacob here now has found that this relationship with Laban was conditional, which he probably suspected all along. And now that he recognizes that that conditional relationship has turned to the negative, Jacob hears from the Lord, he says. Now, this is the first time Jacob has heard from the Lord, as far as we know, in 20 years. The 14 years he worked for the two women, plus now six more on top of that. And in this vision or in this dream, the Lord directs Jacob, we're told, to leave Haran and return to his own land. Now, we can make an assumption here. The fact that this is the first time that the Lord has said anything to Jacob in 20 years concerning whether to stay or whether to leave, that should tell us that God has wanted Jacob here for 20 years. And only now is he willing to tell Jacob it's time to leave. So self-evidently, these 20 years have served some purpose in God's plan for Jacob's life. He needed to be here just that long. But now it's time to go back. And Jacob, we're told, hears this, apparently while in the field shepherding the flock. And while he's there, he calls his two wives. Notice not all four, because two are of a lesser station. Two are the slaves of the other two. So he only needs to call the two wives who are the owners, that is, Leah and Rachel, and calls them out to the field, and they're away from Laban and away from the sons. So they can have a private conversation about what they do next. And after six years of working for Laban, now Jacob is going to present to Laban's own daughters, it's time to leave dad. Now, the daughters up to this point would naturally have assumed that they're going to spend their whole lives working with dad. Laban, it seems, has found a way to keep Jacob there, and Jacob seems to be content working. So the women at this point would have had no expectation that they would ever leave. Jacob has become an adopted son of Laban. So what is Jacob going to do? Jacob is going to make a strong case to his wives that they should follow him as he now gets ready to depart the land in keeping with the Lord's instructions. Now, they have a legal obligation to follow Jacob, No matter what he does, they have both a legal obligation, a cultural obligation, even a biblical obligation to follow him. But he knows that he will have a fight on his hands with Laban as he tries to depart. And he wants these women on his side, allied with him in spirit, not just in law. And so he takes the proper time to explain to his wives what he wants to do and to win them over and to have their allegiance. And look how he begins. He notes first that his relationship with Laban has changed. In recent years, it's no longer one of an ally or a friendship. It is now a relationship in which they are becoming adversaries. But yet he says to the women, you know what I've done. I'm blameless in this. 
I've worked to the bone to serve your father for these years that I've been here. And yet your father is the one who's been nothing but dishonest to me the whole time. In fact, we learned something interesting here. We learned that Laban has changed Jacob's wages ten times. And what he's referring to here is not the 14 years. There were no wages paid during the 14 years. What he earned during the 14 years was his two wives. That didn't change. He's talking only about the last six years. In the last six years, it seems, according to Jacob's testimony, that whenever there was the production of these animals, the sheep and the goats that were Jacob's, that had the speckles spotted and so on, then that must have produced in Laban a concern that this wasn't working out so well for him. So rather than be honest and stick with the terms of the deal, he went unilaterally to Jacob and he said, you know what, I don't like the terms anymore. This is what we're going to do from here on out. From now on, all you get is speckled. If they're striped, if they're spotted, if they're black, they're mine. And as those rule changes came, each time the resulting livestock would produce according to whatever it was Laban said was Jacob's. That switcheroo happens no less than ten times in six years. Clearly, Laban is trying to cheat Jacob. I mean, there's no doubt about it. And now, after watching this go on for six years and watching his wealth disappear, Laban is no longer friendly towards Jacob. Now, in verse 9, Jacob tells his wives, All along I have learned that the Lord has been the one who has been doing this surprising increase in my flocks despite Laban's attempts to change the rules every time I turned around. Now, go back to chapter 30 with me in your mind for a minute, what we studied last week. You remember how that process played out, right? We remember from 30 how Jacob accomplished the mating, the selective breeding process, so that he was able to selectively breed for the kind of animals he wanted. In order to do that, he used knowledge of animal husbandry. He used careful breeding and selection. He had a method, and the method worked. But now we find out that Laban kept changing the rules. Now, when you selectively breed, it means over time you narrow the gene pool down to just what you want. If I then step in at that point and change the rules, you're in a bad situation. You have to work your way to a different gene pool. You can't do that overnight. And then if I change the rules again, you've got to move the gene pool again. Well, that's a, a matter of time and trial and error. And there's no way Jacob could have done that. And that's why Laban kept changing the rules. He assumed it wouldn't work. But miraculously, it didn't seem to matter. The animals came out on cue in exactly the kind that Jacob needed. Now Jacob knows the real secret behind his success. It hasn't been strictly his animal husbandry skill. It's been God. And it becomes evident that it was God, supernaturally God, when we find out about this ten times changing of the rules. Because there is no way Jacob could have managed that on his own. It's proof. God was enriching Jacob at Laban's expense. It is not just that God was enriching Jacob. God was intent on enriching Jacob at Laban's expense. Now, we can understand why God wants to enrich Jacob. He said he would bless him. But why does it have to come at Laban's expense? It's the result of God's promises. Remember, when God told Abraham and his descendants that he would bless him, he said it this way, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. When Laban turned, when he turned his face from Jacob, he moved himself from the side of blessing to the side of cursing. Where before, the actions of Jacob in his household became a blessing for him, when he set his mind and his heart against Jacob's success, he set his mind and heart against his own success, according to God's word. 
That's the God we serve, a God who will not change his promises. And glory be to God and praise to his name because we live in those promises. We rest in those promises. For years, Jacob has been a blessing. Now, Jacob is the source of curse. So how did Jacob come to this recognition? How did Jacob, the man we know, come to the point where he understands the Lord is behind these blessings? Well, in the next series of verses, he tells his wives how he came to know this. In verse 10, it's this dream. He says, it came about at the time when the flocks were mating, that I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream, and behold, the male goats which were mating were striped, speckled, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. He said, lift up now your eyes and see that all the male goats which are mating are striped, speckled, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar, where you made a vow to me. Now, arise. Leave this land and return to the land of your birth. So it comes in this dream. And the dream is simple. Jacob's out in the field. He's mating the flocks. And in the middle of the day, this is evidently not a nighttime dream. This is something God brings upon him in his daytime experience. He has a vision or a dream in which all the male goats have the speckled and spotted appearance. Now, in real life, if Jacob had come out of the dream and just looked at the real life flock, what he would have seen was a mixture He's shepherding Laban's flock, which includes some animals that are his and some animals that are Laban's. So in this flock, he would have seen solid colored animals, black, white, brown, so on. He would have also seen some speckled and spotted and and all the rest. But in the dream, every male goat is speckled and spotted. The message of the dream is, regardless of what the animals look like on the outside, Jacob, God would make sure that inside their DNA they had all they needed to produce the right animal and no matter which one's mated with which, you were going to get the right animal. That was God's blessing to you. The entire flock was yours. So what do we conclude, by the way? In light of what we learned in chapter 30 and in light of what we see now in chapter 31, what do we conclude? Did Jacob's efforts at interbreeding with the rods and all the sophistication of his methods, did that lead to his success? Or was it God's grace behind the scenes that led to Jacob's success? Trick question. The answer is yes. Jacob's work led to the outcome. God's work made it possible. God says this in Proverbs 16.1. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answers of the tongue is from the Lord. Later in that same chapter, Proverbs 16.9, he says, The mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. It doesn't diminish the Lord's sovereignty for us to acknowledge that the Lord works through the plans and actions of men. I'm not doing violence to God's sovereignty by simply acknowledging the obvious. As I work and I do things in my life, I'm making possible outcomes of certain kinds. But it is always behind the scenes God at work in his sovereignty to ensure the proper outcomes, the intended outcomes, the ones that are according to his will. If I were to sit still and do nothing, God's will will still be done in this world, but perhaps not through me. And when it's not through me, it's not to my blessing, ultimately. And who loses in that situation? Only me. You ever had a petulant, pouting child? Dumb question. Yes. So you remember when you've had the petulant, pouting child who refuses to participate in something as a protest, perhaps, and in the end, they're 
stealing fun from themselves. The whole nature of the protest hurts them more than anyone else. And when you see that happening, don't you want to just shake the child? No, not really. But shake the child and say, don't you understand? You're losing, not me. Well, in a sense, that's God's perspective on us when we look at the world around us and say, well, God can do everything. He doesn't need me. Well, self-evidently, that's true. But what about you? What about the blessing that comes out of being involved in God's work? Doesn't that matter? And the scripture's answer is, yes, that matters. It matters to you and to me. And it mattered to Jacob. He worked. He used his mind. He may have had some poor motives. He may have had some schemes built in there. But at the end of the day, he worked and God used it. And now God reveals himself to Jacob in such a way that Jacob can know it wasn't all about me. You know, in a sense, that's the gospel. In the way we ourselves will come to believe initially that we became Christians thinking about God and us deciding we liked Jesus and us doing, us doing, us doing. And then once we've come into faith, we start to learn from the scriptures, we realize it had nothing to do with us. I had to make a decision. I had to step forward. I had to say yes to something. But at the end of the day, God was the one prompting that response. God was the one in the spirit drawing me to himself. God was the one who died on the cross. So what did I really do? I got saved. I didn't save myself. In the end, you have to recognize all good things come from the Father of lights, as James puts it. So at the end of the day, what God is going to do is good, regardless of our efforts, but he depends on our efforts for our own blessing. This is another encouraging sign, by the way, that Jacob... In the way he's received this dream and recognized that God is at work, this is a sign the guy's growing up a little bit, that he's maturing in his faith. That's a good sign in itself. That he knows God's been protecting me. God's been taking care of me. And therefore, God's going to protect and take care of me wherever I go. And that's the point God's making here. This is for him and for his wives. Because the challenge for his wives at this point in hearing this whole story is, what else do we have? All right, you tell us this is bad, But what else is there? This is all the life these women have known. And look at what it's done for them. They're rich. Remember the last verse in chapter 30? Jacob's rich. By our standards, by their standards, you imagine the rich people of your world today. That's Jacob now in this day. He's got rich wives. What made them rich? Well, from their point of view, working for dad. So here's what's happened. Jacob has walked into his home, into his family setting, to his wife specifically, and he said, let's leave everything that's made us rich. Now, what he said was, God is the one who's making his provision possible. God is the God that follows me wherever I go. God will take care of us. We don't need to be here. We don't need to be in Laban's home for that to be possible. But don't you understand that's a bit of a stretch? Don't you think it would have been difficult for the women at first glance or at first hearing to accept that premise? And look at how Jacob tries to gain their confidence. He says, the provision they have is in the Lord, not in Laban. So following the Lord, not following Laban is the key. God is in control. I find this to be so contemporary as a message. God is in control of your finances. God is in control of your finances. You have every dollar you have because he gave it to you. It could all disappear tomorrow. It's completely in his control. The adage that, well, I've got a lot of money in the bank and I've got a good paying job, so I'm secure. Read the book of Job and tell me that. No one is secure in anything except in the Lord, which is all we need. Some men are wealthier than others. And this has always been the case and always will be until the kingdom and then even in the kingdom, according to Scripture. God himself made Solomon the richest man in the world in his lifetime, perhaps the richest man who's ever lived. 
And yet it was God himself in Jesus who said we will always have the poor. So the same God that made some rich is the same God who has said we will always have the poor. Self-evidently, God is not overly concerned with the distribution of wealth in society. God is not unconcerned with our physical needs, but his first concern is our obedience, not our net worth. And as a result, we should align our concerns with that. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added unto you, Jesus says. So like Jacob, we can and we should contribute to our own needs as best we can. But whatever comes of that effort is self-evidently from the Lord and his grace. And therefore, we are, by Scripture's demands, expected to display contentment in whatever we have. The lack of contentment drives an awful lot of bad behavior. Paul said it best in 1 Timothy when he said in 1 Timothy 6.6, but godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, so we can take nothing out of it either. If we have food and covering, well, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Can't we all name examples of people who have done that? Jacob is standing before his wives saying, yes, your father has been a blessing to us through God's hand. Yes, we have accumulated much by God's work. And now it's time to leave. And he finishes his testimony by recounting the word he received from God. Verse 13, he says, the Lord spoke and reminded me of that pillar of stone I set up in Bethel before I left the land and came here. And in that place, we're told, Jacob anointed the pillar and made a vow. Do you remember the vow that Jacob made when he was at that point? It was in chapter 28. Let me just reread the two or three verses from where that vow is found. Genesis 28, 20. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear, and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. This stone which I have set up as a pillar will be God's house, and of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. Well, guess what? God's done everything. And he turns to Jacob in the dream and he says, Your turn. You made the vow. Time to go back. So Jacob presents the case to these women. I want you to notice something here. Even though he's not the best model of a godly husband, there's something he does here that is a model for husbands generally. He had a difficult decision to make as the head of this household, as the man that these women were obligated to follow in marriage. It was a decision that was going to impact him, but it was going to impact everyone. Big decision. Leave dad, leave the family, leave the business. And he went about making that decision. As he did, he chose to involve them in a very sensitive and caring and God-centered way. Husbands, take note of how Jacob brought this to his wives. Now, wherever I say wives, you had better take the S off the word, please. But other than that, it's the same process. Jacob entered into a private discussion with his wives in a place and in a time and in a manner that was clearly intended to show that he valued their opinions and he respected their views and he created an environment in which they could have a conversation that was meaningful and private and directed to the issue. He didn't just say it in the car on the way to church two seconds before everyone gets out of the car. By the way, honey, I quit my job. There's a moment of expectation for conversation. And then as he conducts the conversation, 
his patient efforts here to include them, to seek their support, to communicate the details, to communicate his thinking, all of that exchange was designed to show them their opinions mattered to him. Obviously, he could not have been successful in his attempts to leave Haran without their support and their agreement. He knew that, and he brought it to them with that full expectation that they were partners in this decision with him. Step one, include our wives in family decision-making, not in some kind of superficial way, throw a bone to them and suggest, oh, yes, I know you're my wife here, let's, let's talk about this, even if you've already made the decision, but in a sincere and genuine way so that they have a full opportunity to participate and to offer their wisdom into it. I know that for the most part that's how we do things, I hope, but I also know that in some circles I've run into Christian men who take the headship role of men in the family to mean I don't care what my wife thinks. Bad decision, really, really, really bad decision. Not only because of discord in the family, but because you're lacking the godly counsel God has provided through your spouse. Why turn that away? Second thing Jacob does, he presents a case built on facts. A case that shows that his thinking is grounded first and foremost in a concern for the family and for a respect for God. He doesn't declare that the plan is because I said so or because I told you so or that's just the way it's going to be, honey. He makes the case as if the decision is still up in the air because in his heart and in his mind it was. He tries to win them over. So the second thing, men, is make sure that in the way you present your case, you support it with facts. You do the best to reason it. You aren't treating them as somehow lesser in that role of of decision making. You don't. Assume that they'll just go with whatever you say because you said it. I know men who think like that. I know women who think like that. But in the biblical mindset, the role of headship does not negate the value and the importance of dialogue and of concern over the facts and discussion of the details. And then finally, most importantly, Jacob puts God's actions, God's desires, God's word in the center of the decision making and in the center of the conversation. His explanation to the wives is centered on what he has learned from God, on his convictions from what God has revealed, on what he has been given as insight from God. And then when it comes time to support the decision he proposes, he rests on the word of God. Literally, in his case, a word he received from the Lord. Jacob is the head of the household. He is the husband. So by culture, law, and according to God's plan for the family, Jacob could make this decision without his wife's consent, and they would be obligated to follow him. But that wouldn't have been a loving or smart thing for him to do. A loving husband values the wife's opinion and values the wife's insight. A loving husband gives time for deliberation, for exploring options. A loving husband demonstrates his own willingness to listen to the Lord and to follow the word. And a loving husband is willing to do all these things as he leads because it's the way he obeys the voice of the Lord himself. As husbands, we could do a lot worse than following Jacob's example here. So he's showing promise, isn't he? There's some progress in his character and in his faith. After 20 years, it seems as though the Lord's working in him has started to show some fruit. But unfortunately, his wives lag behind him. And when we come back to this part of the book in two weeks, we're going to see that that lagging effect, the sin of Jacob propagated in the lives of his family, begins to materialize now in the way the wives behave and then in future chapters the way his sons behave. It's very evident that what God is doing in his life will take generations to work out in the lives of his family. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, take the conviction that you may have been bringing in the word this morning and turn it to good in our lives, Father.
Take the example of Jacob, a man who is flawed but striving with you, even if against you at times. I Take that example, Father, and show us ourselves in it where, where that's appropriate. But also, Father, give us hope and encouragement as we leave today, the hope and the knowledge that resting in your promises as a child of God by faith, that we have a Father who holds us close to himself as, a, as he would a son, who will not turn his back on us no matter what we do, who is faithful even when we are faithless, who is consistent and determined to work a work in us so that even on our worst days, Father, we have reason to wake up the next morning and say, here again is a day in which I may serve the Lord. We know that you receive our service by our faith, but you do the work you do. And it will always be by your will and to your glory. And so, Father, help us to be in your will. Help this church, Father, to grow in every possible way. Help us to be a greater reflection of your presence in the city. Help us, Father, to be a greater witness to the truth. Help us to simply be Christ-like, Father. And send us out of here renewed in our determination to do those things. We pray and lift these things up to you in the name of Jesus. Amen.